Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. Today is uh, part two, the two-part sermon here in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 in particular. It's kind of where I'm focused in on right now. If you were not here last Sunday, I will not lie to you. You're going to be a little bit lost. I don't know why we say that I won't lie to you. Like we ever start a sentence with, I'm going to lie to you. <laughs> so why do we clarify the opposite? I'm not sure. Anyway, you'll be a little lost uh, if you were not here last Sunday. I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But we're going to read Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. And then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for our opportunity to study it again together this morning. We thank you that you sustain us and provide for us, and we are reminded constantly of our need for you in, in everything in life. You, Jesus, you are the one who paid it all for us. That song has resonated in my heart this morning. That in the end, you know our weakness and you know our foolishness and our shortcomings and, and our sufficiency is not found in ourselves and ever will be. It's not found in our knowledge and our cleverness and our righteousness, what little of that there seems to be in our lives. I, You are our everything, and you are enough. You are always enough. And so may we rejoice in that even today. May we remember that we are all together on a path, a journey that is leading us to that day when we see you face to face, when we finally reach the mature manhood and the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. And until that day comes, may we walk this journey in love and patience with one another, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, given my uh, incredibly long introduction from last Sunday, which I would give you kudos for sitting through and and being so kind with uh, and listening to, 
I have decided that I am not going to say much by way of introduction today other than to plead with you to go back and listen to last Sunday's message if for some reason you weren't here. And I really do mean plead. I don't normally ask you to do that. Some of you go back and listen to messages, which I've never figured out why you do that, but whatever. Uh, If you don't do that normally or you weren't here last week, please just go listen to it because it it will help you understand today. But really, um, I didn't just go through that for the sake of these few verses we're in right now. I did it for the sake of the whole letter to the Galatians because there's a number of things we'll be seeing throughout the book that will be affected by some of that, and I figured it was a good time uh, to cover it then. So please go back. And listen, because no matter how much I might try to divorce myself from the things I described to you last Sunday, there is absolutely no denying that I will always be affected by those things. And, and, and so I need to acknowledge that. I want you to understand that as well. And the reason that I shared that incredibly long story with you last Sunday is because what do we find as we turn now here to the opening verses of chapter 3 as Paul is beginning to try to reason with the Galatians as to why they should not abandon the gospel of grace in Christ and go back to the Old Testament law. We find none other than the topic of uh, the Galatians' experience in the Holy Spirit. And as I shared with you last time, because of my background... I have struggled for years with both aspects of of that statement. On the one hand, I have struggled with the whole idea of experience and of experiential arguments just in general because I have typically not put a lot of weight in my own experiences, my own emotions related to those things, and have therefore not put a lot of weight in other people's experiences as well. I'm not trying to be a a negative Nancy with that, and I believe me, I'm trying to grow in that as well, but hopefully now you understand why. Uh, second, um, that it has to do specifically with their experience of the Holy Spirit makes it even a little bit more complicated for me, because as I said last week, and because of my background, there is no single area of theology or of practical Christian living that I have wrestled with more and agonized over more and studied more than that of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that does not mean that I have figured everything out. In fact, I would say the opposite. I have a few uh, beliefs, which I would say are clearly, explicitly biblical. I mean, I could turn to chapter and verse and say, you know, this, this is true. You know, like the Holy Spirit is deity. It's God, right? It's a member of the Trinity. I hope you all can agree with that and affirm that, because if you can't, we will have a problem. Um, outside of that, I've got a few other beliefs that I think are implicitly biblical, meaning I can't tell you with 100% certainty that I'm right, but they seem to line up with what I see in Scripture, and, and so I have to hold those things a little bit more loosely since I can't prove them 100%. But outside of those two general categories, I have a lot of, of areas where I have, at least I feel like anyway, more questions than I have answers. And no doubt, as you heard me say that last Sunday, you probably sat there and thought, uh, but Stacy, you're a pastor. You're our pastor. Like You shouldn't feel like that. That shouldn't be true of you, and you're probably right. It probably shouldn't be true of me, uh, but it is, and I, I, I have to be honest about that, and this is what I'm bringing to the text, and, and I felt you needed to know that, because as we ended our time together last week here in verses 1 to 2, I'm going to pick right back up. I told you very little introduction today. Pick right back up from last time. 
I told you that Paul here begins with an assertion that leads him to a question that is the genesis of all of this. The assertion here in verse 1 is that it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And remember, I told you that the words here, publicly portrayed, are usually referred to, or usually used to refer to a formal written explanation, explanation of something, something that's detailed and thorough. Uh, but I don't think that as Paul is using this word here, he's using it to refer to any kind of a document or report that he wrote to them. I think as you look at the context and you look back into Acts at his preaching of the uh, gospel to them there on his first missionary journey, I think that he is describing his preaching of the gospel, that his gospel, his proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified was detailed. It was thorough. It was complete. He didn't leave out any of the details or any of the significance of the gospel as he proclaimed it to them. And he believes very clearly that they understood that gospel thoroughly and completely. And we might ask, well, how is he so certain that they understood it? I mean, for goodness sake, aren't they thinking about walking away from it and going back to the Old Testament law? That would maybe make us think that maybe they didn't really get it. No, 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 they got it. And the reason we can be so confident that they got it is very simple. It's because as you look at verse 2, it's because they had received the Holy Spirit. And well, I won't spend any other time on this point right here other than just to mention it to you. And Paul is very clear in Romans chapter 8. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not a believer in Christ. Very, okay, that's one of those explicit ones again. You've got to believe that, and there's no debating it. If you're a believer, you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit not a believer, and he says it. They, they received it. He knows. He was there. And, and this is now what we begin to look at in verse 2. He begins by saying, let me ask you only this. And I love that opening there because after asking this one and only question that he wants to ask them in verse 2, as you look at verses 3 and following, what does he keep doing? He keeps asking them more and more questions, which is kind of like when your mom, when you were little, would say to you, I only have one thing to say about that. And that was never true, was it? Never. Some of you who are children don't answer that. Um, Never was true in my house. If mom only had one thing to say, I was going to be there for a while. So I think this is more of a rhetorical device than it is a literal statement of fact here in this verse. I think what he's trying to say to them is, this is my big main question to you. All my other questions are going to flow out of this one, but this is the, the main question that I want to get your attention with, and it's this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, Let's just begin by, by answering the question that Paul is asking them here. What, what's the answer? Well, the answer is that they receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. That's it. It's a very simple answer to a very simple question. It's a rhetorical question, meaning that both Paul and the Galatians already know the answer to it. They did not receive the Spirit of God by keeping the Old Testament law. They never did. And in the larger context of what's going on here with these believers, this is a very powerful argument because Paul's like, hey, listen, guys, you are thinking about walking away from the sufficiency of your faith in Jesus Christ and returning back to the Old Testament law. But, but let's be very clear. Did that Old Testament law ever do anything for you? Did, did you ever uh, receive the Spirit when you were following that law? And, and they know the answer. The answer is No. They did not receive the Spirit until they turned in faith to Jesus Christ alone. So, I don't know, isn't that like a, a big fat clue that maybe going back to the Old Testament law isn't such a great idea? Like, it's not, it's not rocket science, right? This is, this is why he calls them foolish here in verse 1. This is 
illogical. Shouldn't their reception of the Spirit after they listen in faith be proof enough for them that going back to the Old Testament law is nonsensical? That's the point of the question, to show them that it just it doesn't make any sense. In fact, if you look through the following questions here in verses 3 through 5, you'll see that this is the point of all of them. They're all very, very easy to answer. Just, just look at it. In verse 3, he goes, are you so foolish? He comes back to that word again. Are you really this illogical? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Well, what does he mean here by the flesh? He's referring to you know, the fact of keeping the Old Testament law. Do you really think now that you've received the Spirit of God within you, that the way you're going to make God happy is by not relying on the Spirit of God within you, but rather by going back and trying to obey this law? Is that, is that really what you're saying? That this is how you're going to be perfected, sanctified, live a life that, that makes God happy? No, 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 no. That doesn't make any sense. Well, how about the next one? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Uh, I've, I've told you all along that my assumption of what's going on here in the Galatian churches is that they are under, I think, probably a great amount of persecution by the unbelieving Jewish community for turning to the gospel of grace. I think that, that they're being persecuted probably like Paul was when he went there and preached. And, and I think this would at least support that. I don't know if it 100% confirms it, but it supports it if, if nothing else. Hey, guys, if, if your observance of the Old Testament law was good and right from the beginning, then you do realize you would have suffered everything that you've suffered so far in vain, right? But did you really do it in vain? Was all of that for nothing? Everything that you've encountered and endured over the last months or years or whatever it may be was... I hope not. Next question, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And again, it's rhetorical. Both he and the Galatians already know the answer. Their present and continued experience of the Holy Spirit, which includes, if you will note, the, the working of miracles in their midst, that is happening because of faith. Not, not because they kept the Old Testament law, their former observance of the law never produced that in their lives. So, so what they're experiencing now as believers, what, what they're experiencing now as people who put their faith in Jesus Christ alone and no longer in the observance of the Old Testament law is unlike anything that they had experienced before. And that alone, that alone should cause them to realize that turning away from this faith that is producing all of these amazing results, I'll call it, in their life, and going back to the law, which produced none of that, it, it doesn't make any sense. It, it, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, can you see what he's doing? The, the whole point of this opening section is very, very simple. He is showing them, not that their experiences are superior. Please understand this point. He is showing them that faith is superior that their faith is superior to the law, and their own experiences then should serve as proof of that. And if you want to see that for a fact, just look at where he turns next in verse 6, a verse I'm not going to cover until next Sunday. But what does he turn to immediately? Abraham, right? Abraham's faith. In fact, we can keep going there. It's all about faith, the superiority of faith. This is the point he's trying to make, and we can't forget this, that ex this experiential argument. It's just a it's just a component of a larger argument he's trying to make here as he reasons with them of why turning away from faith to the law makes no sense. 
Well, that's really easy. Like all of those questions are all being answered by the same thing, right? It's faith. Faith. Faith is better. Faith is better. Faith is better. Law didn't do it. Faith is better. Very, very easy to work through. But, but for us now, as we try to think through it on our own, um, I want to ask and just briefly answer a couple of questions that arise in my own mind. You know, as I worked through uh, this section, just as a way of of, of trying to help us in part process some of what we see here. And, and you'll understand, for those of you who were here last week, why I'm asking these specific two questions. My first question is this. What weight should we as believers put on experience or experiential arguments within the Christian life? What weight should we put on experience or experiential arguments within the Christian life? Now, let's just quickly observe that not only... Have we all heard these kinds of arguments and heard of these kinds of experiences that, that are around us? But we ourselves have made these kinds of arguments. And you say, I have never made that kind of argument. Oh, well, I hope you have. If you've ever said to someone, you know, when I, when I became a believer, when I put my faith in Jesus, when I trusted the gospel, my life changed. If you have ever said that or anything even close to that, recognize that what you're doing is you're making an experiential argument. That, that the gospel came in and changed your life. It had, had some kind of result. You say, well, that's, a, that's just a minor uh, experiential argument. Uh, okay. <laughs> I don't really know how to quantify or qualify these things. You either made one or you didn't in my mind, and that's clearly one. And so, all right, recognize it. We all make them. Number two here, let's all just quickly observe that experiential arguments are not bad or wrong to make. Not at all. And you say, well, how do you know? Well, I can tell you with 100% certainty simply because Paul makes one here. Easy, right? And he's not alone in this. There's a ton of these kinds of arguments throughout Scripture, and you're going to see another one here in just a second. Next, let's remember that it is right for us to expect experiences within the Christian life, experiential results within the Christian life. In other words, the gospel should change us. That's the whole point of James chapter 2, right? You get that? James says there, if all you say is that you have faith, we just looked at this a few weeks ago, so you're going to know the answer to this question. If all you say is that you have faith, but you don't have works, your faith is what? Dead. Very good. Both groups got it. Your faith is dead. If you can say that you have faith and there's no experiential outcome within your life, then what you have is an invalid faith because genuine faith produces tangible, observable results. It changes you. I'm not saying completely overnight. I'm not saying 100%, but it makes a, an impact on your life. And at least it should, and if it hasn't, then I would question some things. So in all of these ways, and there certainly are more if I had time to develop them, I want you to understand that there is most definitely a place for experience and experiential arguments within the Christian life. And, and we cannot be anti-experience. I cannot be anti-experience. But quite frankly, and, and maybe this is just my perception of the uh, reality that we find ourselves in, and so if you disagree with this perception, that's okay. I don't really think that's the danger that the church as a whole is in today. As I look across the broad spectrum of Christianity, I don't see 
a lot of anti-experiential people out there. I think most people, most believers are, are very willing to embrace experience, their own or others. I just had a situation I dealt with a few months ago, not in Cornerstone along those lines. And so, so with that said, I wanted to give you some cautions or at least some concerns, some thoughts as to how you should interact with experiences and or experiential arguments, whether they're your own or someone else's, just just as a way of having something to think about, okay? I've got five of them for you if you're keeping notes. Number one, I want you to simply remember that the heart of man is desperately wicked and no one can know it. Jeremiah 17, 9. Um, I say this to remind us that we live in a broken and sinful world that is filled with broken and sinful people and not all of those people who talk about their experiences are being honest. Now you're saying, Stacy, you just instantly think people who talk no, are lying? No, 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 you've missed my point. I actually have tried very hard in my life to walk away from that. I would have been there at one point, but I've tried to walk that back. I want to be like the Bereans, right? An eager receiver of truth, always checking things by Scripture. I'm just making the point that, that not everything we hear is true, and you just need to recognize that. Can I tell you who? Nope. Can I tell you how often? Nope. Can I tell you when you first something that's not right? Nope. I can't tell you anything. It's not my place. I wouldn't even know where to start or how to begin. I just don't want you to be surprised by that. That the heart of man is desperately wicked. And you can't know it and I can't know it, so just recognize that. Number two, I want you to remember that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Not every angel of light you see is from the Lord, if I could put it in that way. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 to 15. And I love the point that Paul is making there in 2 Corinthians 11. His point, as he's saying this to those believers, is because they're dealing with, with people who are like mingling in their midst, who are acting as prophets. And he's like, no, 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 understand that, that if Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, then some of his followers are too. Just be aware of that. Don't be surprised when you see that happen. Number three, and that's true of anyone, any church anywhere, Number three, remember that we have been forewarned by Jesus about false prophets and false messiahs who can perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, the very elect, Matthew 24. You say, do you know of anyone? No, I don't. I have no idea. But I know it. Jesus talked about it. And you say, well, how can that even be possible? Well, I don't know for sure, but see 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 to 15, if Satan can disguise himself as his followers can as well. And it just reminds me of something the elders talked about on Friday morning on a completely unrelated topic. That The older I get here, the more I realize that we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, folks. This is not just about charlatans or people who want to trick you. We are wrestling against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness in this age. We have no idea, no idea of the spiritual warfare that goes on around us. And so do not be surprised by anything you see. Do not be surprised by anything. Number four, remember that our God does not share his glory with another. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. You know, folks, our God is a powerful God. He can do whatever he pleases. If you disagree with that, then you and I are going to have a real problem, okay? He, he, he can do whatever he pleases. He can work any miracle. He can do anything. And his hand is not limited by us. But I'll tell you one thing, that, another thing that's true of him. He does not share his glory with man. He may work through man. He may use man. He does work through man. He does use man, but he does not share his glory with man. And so for me, whenever I see someone who's drawing attention 
specifically to the amazingness of their own um, experiences, particularly if they're getting money or fame out of it, as a little side note, um, it at least makes me stop and wonder. I'm, I'm not telling you for sure about anyone because I can't say for sure about anyone. I just would remember and exhort you that God rewards those who do things in secret, that he honors those who do not go out and trumpet their own righteousness in the streets, and it is the least who are the greatest in heaven. Our God does not share his glory with others. And then number five, remember that our focus in all of these things and in everything is to be on Christ and Christ alone, not on experience. Um, this, this is, you know, what I want to see us share with others and get excited about as we talk with others. Not, not an experience, but Christ. I want to see someone who's, who's coming and, and, and finding great joy in an experience that they've had to, to be bringing glory to the name of Jesus and not to the experience itself. And I just would remind you that if you keep your focus on Christ at all times in these things, you will never go wrong. Just as an easy little thought here. So just, just a couple of thoughts on that first question of, of how do we process you know, experience and experiential arguments within the Christian life. Don't be anti-experience. Don't be a negative Nancy. Receive eagerly truth, but, but always check with Scripture. We need some discernment, is all I'm saying. Okay, and just some points for discernment. Now, the second question that came to my mind was, well, what exactly then is the right way to handle questions regarding and differences over the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Now, some of you might have thought that I was going to like launch into, out of this message, like a detailed explanation of everything I believe about the Holy Spirit. And if you thought that, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I would just remind you that I have about, I don't know, seven or eight minutes left, and volumes and volumes have been written on this subject, and I've spent 20 years thinking about this subject, and seven minutes just ain't going to cut it, all right? Not, maybe another day. If I had a month of Sundays, I'm not sure we could cover it, but, but I don't have time today. So as I thought about this, I thought, well, what... What would truly be helpful? What do we truly need, particularly from, and I'm, I'm thinking of this from my background and perspective, is, as I've watched people interact with this subject for years now, what would be the most helpful thing for us? And this is what I came up with, my question, what is the right way to handle questions regarding and differences over the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Because we have them. They, don't pretend we don't, we do. We have them within the church as a whole. We have them within Cornerstone. We have them within the elder team. We don't see everything eye to eye on that point. So, so what do you do with that? So let me break that up into both parts. Uh, the first one, in regards to any questions we have regarding the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and actually this would apply to any doctrine, but I'm focused on this one today. Uh, here are some truths you can think about, four of them. Number one, whatever questions you have, ask them. I remember being uh, still a very young believer, I'm like 19 or 20 years old, and coming to the realization, get this, that God was not threatened by my questions. <laughs> I, you, you laugh, and I do too now, but I, at the time, I'm like, oh, there's some things you just could never possibly think of or ask. Like, ooh. <laughs> you ask them, you start to feel guilty, right? And I'm like, wait a minute, God isn't. He's not like threatened by the questions I want to ask him about any subject, not just this one, anything at all. So how much freedom that gives you? Ask away. Any question you have, ask it. And then number two, as you're asking those questions, try not to assume anything. I don't care where you're at on the spectrum of this topic. Try not to assume anything. Tr try to make sure that you can actually base every 
understanding you have as best you can from Scripture, that you can, that you can prove it. And come back and keep asking that question. Can I prove it from Scripture? Can I prove it from Scripture? Can I prove it from Scripture? And as you do this, you're going to find a couple of things happen. On some points, you'll be like, yes, I can. Great, right? That's great. That's what you want. You want to hopefully find that you're right more often than you're wrong. At least that's my goal in life, generally speaking. Uh, but sometimes you're going to find that you're not right. And either you were completely wrong and you completely need to change something, or at least you realize maybe you can't be as certain as you were before. Either way, no matter what the outcome is, it's good. <laughs> I hope you understand that. Because what we ultimately want is, number three, this is kind of the same thing, but stated a little bit stronger, we want to be able to base every answer we have in Scripture as best we can. Every last detail of it. Now, on the topic of the Holy Spirit in particular, there are Again, there are some things, some questions I have asked that I can now explicitly point to the text and say, this is why I believe this. I mean, it is black and white. Back to the, the deity of the Holy Spirit. You cannot disagree with me on this, all right? If you disagree with me on this, we've got a problem. There are other questions that are not explicitly answered in Scripture, and so you can have two people, both desiring to be as biblical as they can, come and look at the same exact passage of Scripture, ask some of the same exact questions, and come out at two different points. You know what? I'm okay with that. I really am. I mean, I'd love for everyone to think like I think, but I know that's never going to happen, and I'm really just joking with that, believe me. But... Um, I'm okay with that because both people are trying. They're trying as faithfully as they can to be, to be as biblical as possible in that belief. And, and that's what our goal should be. Our goal should not be that everyone comes to the same position we are at. I hope we are not that arrogant. Sometimes we are, but I hope we're not. The goal should be that everyone roots their beliefs very firmly in Scripture, whether it's the Holy Spirit or any other topic for that matter. And as long as I have that, I'm good with it. Even if I disagree with you, even if I disagree with you strongly, I'm good with that because I trust that you're trying to be faithful just like I'm trying to be faithful to the text, and that's most important. Number four, you should make sure that every answer you have exalts Christ. And, and again, this should be true for anything, but, but as long as everything that we believe is coming back to the centrality of Jesus, then we're going to stay on the right path. You start forgetting that, you start like trying to exalt this or that, or you're going to get yourself in trouble. Make sure that everything you believe and every answer you come up with ultimately exalts the person of Jesus Christ. If you do these four things, you'll be on the right track. Now, the other half of that question in regards to our differences over the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, let me give you a few additional thoughts, six again to be exact. If you're keeping notes, number one, do you have differences? Acknowledge them. This is not complicated. Just acknowledge them. Just at least be able to articulate what your difference is. That's, that's, a big good, that's a good starting place, okay? Just acknowledge them. We have differences. We are not yet, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we've not yet come to that unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I don't think we're going to get there till heaven, all right? That's just where I'm at with that. So acknowledge the differences. That's step one. Number two, I would encourage you very strongly to major on the majors and minor on the minors. As I said earlier, and I keep coming back to this example because it's a really, really easy one that I think is a 100% win in this room. Um, if you and I disagree over the deity of the Holy Spirit, we got a problem, right? That's a major. That's a big, big major. If you and I disagree, though, over the continuation of gifts in the church and how that looks, yeah, it's a minor to me. 
That's a minor to me. I can, I can live with some differences there. I can tell you what I think is true, but I can't tell you with 100% certainty that I'm right, so I'm willing to, to let that one sit. So let's just keep majors, majors, and minors, minors, all in their proper place. Number three, where we do disagree, and I'm using these words figuratively, understand how I mean them. When we do disagree, let's fight like brothers, not like enemies. You understand that, what I mean there? Sometimes i got brothers, and they, they're going to fight it out. Fist to flying. <laughs> they love each other. They really do. But they're brothers, and brothers fight sometimes. I, I don't mind fight. I like a good fight every now and then. It's fun to me. I, I enjoy a, a, a lively debate, a robust discussion, particularly on some of these things. But hey, you're a brother. You're a brother. I'm going to fight you like an enemy. I'm not going to treat you like an enemy, and don't treat others like enemies as well. Um, so while we might disagree, fight like brothers, not like enemies. Number four, remember that Christ didn't die only for the people who agree with you. Got that? That's one way of, for me to say, remember that the gospel trumps our minors. It does. It trumps our minors. So we're going to have points of, of disagreement on this and that throughout life, not just in the Holy Spirit, but um, other things as well. And uh, the gospel trumps those things. I have great friendships with, with a number of people who disagree with me, some of them very, very strongly on some of these points. And I am so thankful for that. I tell them point blank, they're wrong. And they tell me point blank that I'm wrong. And it's great, right? We have the best time and we sharpen one another. And I'm thankful for that. And, and so just understand that that's okay, right? Jesus didn't just die for everyone who agrees with you. So remember that and, and live accordingly. Number five, I want you to consider the, the remote possibility, very remote possibility that you could possibly be wrong. All right, same for me. If you can't point to chapter and verse and say it in black and white, 100% certainty that your belief is, I mean, you've got it. Jesus himself would say this if he was standing here, then just leave that door a little bit open, all right, that you might possibly not have it all right. And I don't know what's going to happen someday if we're going to be in heaven and, and like day one is like seminary, right? And Jesus is going to be like, this was all the right stuff. And, and, and we'll all be like, oh, I'm an idiot. You know, like, how did I not see that? I don't know what's going to happen. But that's the day when all of that will be done. Until that day, be humble. And I'm telling this to you as a hypocrite, okay? I have, I have been a hypocrite on this point on more than one occasion. So just consider that you might not be 100% right about everything. And then number six, love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? And a multitude of stupidity. Uh, so be patient with one another. And bear with one another. You know, it's, it's, it just reminds me, and I don't know, I, I said this in the first service, it wasn't in my notes, so I'll try to say it again the way I did there. Um, maybe this would be good for us to memorize these verses and like have them in our mind anytime we're getting ready to sit down and discuss any point of doctrine with anyone, right? Just remember that the thing Jesus said would be the sure sign that we're his disciples is not our, our correctness on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or any other specific doctrine. What was it? The thing that makes us very clearly identifiably his is that we love one another just as he loved us. So if our conversations and are start with that and are driven by that and governed by that, that's going to go a long way to helping us out as we think through all of the other things that we might not fully understand. So let's love one another as Christ loved us. Look, I, I want us to come out of here, and again, this is kind of like an intro the whole thing is kind of intro to the topic because it's going to keep coming up in Galatians and I wanted us to, to have some kind of a basis here, but I, I do want us to go out and be like the Bereans we talked about last Sunday, right? They, they're eager, eager receivers of truth, but, but they're discerning. 
They're discerning and they're trying to base what they believe in Scripture and check everything that, by that. Experience, experience has its place and we're not going to deny that. But just remember, experience isn't ultimate. Jesus Christ is ultimate. He's the one who has the name that's above every name. And he's the one to whom every knee is going to bow. And so, you know, whenever we take our eyes off of that, that's, that's when we begin to lose our way. I don't care what conversation, discussion, topic you're talking about. You've got to stay on that. And so I urge you this morning, focus on Christ and love one another. Exalt Christ, love one another until that day comes that we do come to the unity of the faith that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, I just want to, we're just trying to get our minds and our hearts set in the right place. And Paul opens his argument to the Galatians here with this experiential argument. And, and for me particularly, that's hard. And, and so I know some of this is, a lot of it probably too much has been based off, off of that. We all, though, bring these things to the table and questions that we don't know how to answer. And, and this has been an issue that has confused the church and distracted the church in so many ways. And we just want to be faithful we want to keep our faith in Jesus Christ alone as center stage and not be drawn back to this or away to that, because that's what Paul's really trying to get at here in this section, to encourage and exhort these believers to stay committed to the faith. And so may we stay committed to our faith in Christ alone, exalting him in everything being eager receivers of truth, but never ones who are undiscerning, never ones who just blindly accept, always going back to your word and trying to understand what we believe there. And so help us to be loving, patient, all of the things we've looked at today. Hopefully, I pray all to the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.